welcome to the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. You know, Lucas Oil, track proven, race ready. Find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. Well, today we have a very special guest. This, uh, this guest here is the 1992 125 motocross champion, 1996 and 97 250 motocross champion, and of course, the 1997 Supercross champion. He is a dear friend, a colleague, and an absolute brother, and I can say that truthfully. Welcome to the show, Jeff Frodaddy Emmett. Uh, it's great to be on, Ralphie. Great to be on. Man, I love the show. I love the format. Um, and after watching the Carmichael episode <laughs> and seeing how this thing's going to unfold, there's a bit of nervousness As <laughs> about what be. you're going to dig out of everyone. Yeah. So, but there... let's do it. Just yeah. rip the Band-Aid off. Okay. Let's get to it. All right. All right. So the first one, for those that maybe don't know, because we do have a lot of folks that you know listen to this show that maybe aren't diehard moto people, right? And they've heard this Fro, Fro Daddy nickname. Where did it come from? Well, it actually, I believe it, it, it came about around 1990, uh, old friend, Denny Stevenson, um, who you obviously worked with on Supercross yep. and, you know, we were all in our, in our early, early twenties. And it was kind of around that time where you start to earn a nickname, right. And a nickname sticks. Um, you know, we had Debo, Budman, J bone, you know, all different sorts of, uh, nicknames and Denny drew this thing out um, like he was probably talking to some chick at the time and just on a, like a notepad, he, he sketched out this thing, Jeffro. And then for some reason, it ended up on the on the refrigerator, you know, with the with the little magnet. And then people started calling me Jeffro. Um, and I remember when I moved, it ended up it somehow it made the transition also. And it was on the new fridge. And then as nicknames uh, have a way of, of, of going, you know, it was Jeff Rowe and then Fro and Fro Daddy and Fro this and Fro that. And, uh, of course, Ralph, you know, I've earned a couple more yes, you have. Uh, uh, variations to it over the, over the years. And then it just kind of stuck. And what was interesting is that the fans attached to it and even to this day, most people, I mean, a large percentage, you know, 80% of the people – when I go to a race, that's what they call me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, I think I call you that more than anything else as well. Yeah. Just, it, it just fits. Yeah. It fits. Yeah. So yeah. just yeah. so we can clear yeah, up the, those and, other... the, and the latest, uh, and the latest variations <laughs> being Jameson Fro yes. or Fireball Fro. So <laughs> we don't want to get into Fireball Fro no. on this. No, but I've had a lot of fun program. with Jameson Fro. <laughs> I can tell you that. Some of those other nicknames yeah. we just said there, uh, just so people know. Budman is Buddy Antonez, a multi-time arena cross champion. Debo is Denny Stevenson, who is very successful in his own moto career. And then, of course, J-Bone, Jeremy Albrecht. And, yeah, we're going to get into J-Bone here in a minute because I did reach out to him much to your demise. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. All right, let's get <laughs> We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, I, you know, the amateur stuff when it comes to motocross and supercross really intrigues me in a lot of ways. Uh, we got into this with, with RC, Ricky Carmichael, um, because of what he went through. But your experience was different, yet every bit is challenging for a, uh, a young man coming up chasing a dream. You spent a lot of time in a van crisscrossing the country with your dad. Sometimes it was great. Sometimes not so easy, correct? 
Yeah. I mean, our family structure, uh, my parents split when I was four. Uh, we basically lived with our father, uh, my brother and I. And then when my sister was a little bit older, uh, that'd be my brother, Brian, and, my, and then my little sister, Paige. Um, our, our whole purpose in life was getting to the weekend, going to the races, whether it was Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, most of the time um, um, Oklahoma and Texas, because that's where all of uh, the competition was and what is it oklahoma city is about five and a half six hour drive each way we go race down around dallas you're talking 10 to 12 hour drive just to go race for the weekend right so pretty big commitment um and now that i'm older and i you know my son's in sports and you know you hear about travel ball and different deals you know the parents you make the sacrifice for the kids because they have a passion my brother was an excellent rider you know, I basically spent my childhood chasing him. And then my little sister Paige really had to sacrifice and, and she had to be along for the ride and she was required to help. I mean, I mean, she had to do all kinds of stuff, including doing air filters, which if anyone's ever done an air filter on a motocross bike, especially back in those days, really sticky oil and grease and all this. And, and it was a mess, but that's, that's what we did. And, and my dad, um, fortunately was in a position as being a race car builder and we owned a race shop and machine shop and all that. He had the flexibility to take the time off. Um, and he saw a real passion and a desire in my brother and I, uh, for the sport of motocross. And so basically he sacrificed everything that he had in life and, and more, you know, as now I'm older, I'm, you, you know, you realize, ah, well, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. You remember this situation or that situation or, he was borrowing money from this guy or that guy or working overtime and doing this or that. So tremendous amount of uh, sacrifice and dedication really from everyone in the family. Um, and, and probably by about the time I was 15 was when it was apparent, okay, there's something here. Um, and then everything else really took a backseat to my racing. Put me in that van. Give me, give me a story from the road back in the day that, gives everybody a real good understanding of maybe how tough it was or how tough it was for you as a kid uh in the relationship with you and your dad in those long trips well yeah i mean for sure one one race that comes to mind and it still sticks with me to this day so we're racing lake whitney texas dude it had to be a 12-hour drive home okay <laughs> and for whatever reason that weekend my i didn't give my best effort okay and my dad certainly you know he, he was never physical with us but damn ralphie <laughs> the further away from home you got the better that you wanted to do because he had that ability i mean he would literally chew my ass out for 12 hours right and we'd stop to get gas and we'd get a we'd stop at hardy's or whatever at the at the you know, the, uh, the stop on the turnpike and he'd be like, all right, do you want something to eat? You know, but the rest of the time he was literally chewing my ass out and it was never about the result. It was always about the effort. Like he's going, look, I am working as hard as I can. I'm giving everything I can. Your brother and your sister are sacrificing for you to do this. And we drive 12 hours, you know, we spend, you know, what at the time, you know, probably was 
400 bucks or 500 bucks for the weekend, which was literally everything we had. And you're going to go down there and not give us your best effort. I mean, man. And one time he was so pissed. And you remember the old Ford Econoline van? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the little center console didn't really have like a cup holder. So you had this like wooden cup holder, this nice thing and you drill it in and put it in. You can put your cups in it. Well, he was all pissed off and I say something well, he hits the thing, and I'm sitting in the back, right? So it was like a build-out, so it had, like, bunks and stuff in the yeah, back. And yeah. he hits the thing, and it breaks off, and he, like, he's all pissed off, and he throws it on the deal. And I knew, you know, I knew that that this was a this was a situation that was, that, that was serious. And it's, you know, it's interesting because Jagger, being a soccer player, uh, son. my son, yeah, who's yeah. Um, 11, uh, my daughter Presley's 15, like I just can't seem to get there uh, it w- with with that, you know. Um, but that being said, you know, as bad as it seemed at the time, and I certainly don't don't condone any sort of physical violence or any, yeah. you know stuff like that. But you know, those the, those were really tough conversations and really motivating conversations that eventually, when I became a professional. I mean, I remember having going through a bad streak. I'd call my dad at two in the morning or three in the morning and and we would have these conversations. Um, So he was always there for me. But there was certainly a bit of tough love uh, during those during those time periods. And I mean, you're you're teenagers. Like, I think it's like, man, you know, I probably needed it. I probably deserved it, you know. Um, And it certainly was a motivating factor to my success because I was always in my dad's face, like trying to dispute this, arguing with him, and the conversation went in. I'll be like, okay, okay, I'll show you next weekend. Wait and see. So his parenting type, his parenting skills worked for me. Yeah. Might not work for everybody, but it worked for you, right? Now for it those didn't, it didn't it didn't work for my older brother. Yeah. He needed the exact opposite. He needed to be lifted up. Yeah. And to be supported. And I was the opposite. You can beat me down and then I'm going to come back and say, okay, I'll show you next week. Well, and that shows all the way through your racing career, right? As you talk about the rivalries, as we will, uh, that you had. Um, Just to finish things off with your dad, though, for those that maybe follow sprint car racing, they might not realize how impactful your dad was uh, in sprint car racing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, back in drag racing, back in the late 60s, he was the head engine builder for uh, Keith Black and all that. He came out to California for a few years and did all back when the drag racing was huge. And then, uh, I mean, he was building, he had his own shop when he was in high school. He was building hot rod stuff and building custom headers when he was in high school and has has been a was a race car builder, SEMA chassis builder all that yeah. um you know he was he was the guy in the midwest for a long time and i mean whether it was sprint cars circle track drag cars like i remember all that stuff being built at our shop I'm, I'm, my dad was is still to this day one hell of a fabricator yeah he and is. now he all of his uh focus now was on cnc uh parts so let's get in a little bit now uh into the fun part of fro And just before we do that, we're going to step aside and take a quick break here on the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Because when we get into the legend of the fro, 
It's going to get pretty fun. <laughs> we'll be, <laughs> we'll be right wait. back with more after this. Lucas Complete Engine Treatment is a multifunctional cleaner plus lubricant from the labs at Lucas Oil Products. It's designed for use in both engine oil and fuel systems. It also cleans and lubricates the entire gas or diesel fuel system from the tank to injectors. It contains special Lucas additives that cause the fuel to burn thoroughly and helps increase your miles per gallon. Expect longer engine life, longer oil life, cleaner exhaust, and less fuel consumption. Lucas Oil Complete Engine Treatment. It works. We will be celebrating Speedsport's 85th anniversary this year. Incredible how time flies by. To help commemorate the occasion, we've unveiled the Vault Collection of merchandise. A really cool variety of t-shirts, hats, posters, and a lot more. It's all available right now in the store at Speedsport.com. Shop for yourself or get a gift or two for your racing buddies. The Vault Collection of merchandise. Available now in the store at Speedsport.com. Welcome back to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Our big thanks to our friends at Lucas Oil for all the help they've given us. This is their interior detailer. You can find it in all the other Lucas Oil products by going to lucasoil.com and finding a retailer near you. Uh, Fro, you know, let's let's get into some of this fun of the legend of the Fro. Um, I reached out, as you know, we like to do here on the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil, to uh, some of your good buddies, our good buddies. And the first one I got a hold of was J-Bone, Jeremy Albrecht. Now, do you want to tell everybody uh, J-Bone and his significance to you and what it means? Well, it's so interesting here that that you that you bring that up because today is actually his 46th birthday. And I was just looking at old photos of us and found uh, – one from the from the Imigos Fresno Smooth commercial and all that. We'll get and to I that. I started thinking, and this, <laughs> yeah, and this is and this is just before you called. I started thinking back, man. When did I meet Jay Bone? I met Joel Albrecht, his little brother, at the Minios in '88. We came out and and invited us to come stay at their place, and you know we probably wore out our welcome, but everybody did at their place. Uh, in the in like 1989, their house in Ritchie Canyon was Motocross Central. I mean, the writing was epic. Um, everybody was there, and so that's in, where in Ritchie my, Canyon. That, my that's out in Southern California, right? For those that don't yeah, know, yeah, yeah, it literally okay. is the best place you could ever ride a motorcycle. Uh, pretty much gone now, you know, or most of it's gone with you know houses and development stuff. But, but, and so I was thinking back. When did I meet Jeremy Albrecht? Right? I actually, um, my first first kind of interesting story with him is that is that when I rode my first Supercross in 1989, I was still an amateur, but I was going to do a few Supercrosses and a few motocrosses. So I rode a 125 Supercross. The helmet company that I had that I had signed a deal with, I didn't want to wear that, didn't want to wear that helmet anymore. And for whatever reason, the contract was going away. I actually wore Jeremy's custom-painted Troy Lee Showy helmet in my very first Supercross. I didn't oh, wow. even wear my own helmet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, hell of a guy, right? Yeah. I don't want anybody sweating in my helmet. Sorry, I'm uh, I'm too selfish that way. But and you know, so you know, we developed this amazing friendship. Uh, we had a great group of guys um, that uh, that all ended up with um, 
jobs and we, whether they were racers and they ended up with uh, positions in the industry. Um, and, and then hell, I was about ready to take my final step and needed a mechanic on factory Kawasaki. And Jeremy had been working for North County Yamaha, working on Pedro Gonzalez's bikes. And, and, uh, he wasn't the first pick and he wasn't the first choice. And we ended up hiring Jeremy and we were such a great fit and we had such a great friendship and he let me be me and, and it, our, you know, our chemistry worked. And, you know, of course we won a lot of races and championships and Fresno smooth and Emigos, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and now he's parlayed that into, you know, working with other riders, championships with James Stewart, you know, Joe Gibbs, giving him the opportunity yep. to run the racing program uh, over there that they have. And I was just thinking today, man, how proud I am of him and, uh, you know, proud to have him as a, as a, as a friend, but also uh, what he's done with his uh, career and with his life. So he's just, he's a great dude. Well, he was a head wrench spinner for you for many, many years and yeah. helped get you to championships. Yeah. And he brought up a couple of stories. Take you mm -hmm. back to 1996 at steel city motocross event. He said, oh, you boy. looked out and blamed a stuck throttle on him. But maybe yeah. that wasn't the real so, story. So I, yeah, I don't, I didn't remember the second part of this, but so uh, at the end of uh, 1996, the last pro motocross, Jeremy McGrath and I were, you know, separated by a point or two. He had won the week before and I had gained a bunch of points uh, a few weeks before that when he, when he hurt himself. And so it came down to steel city, the last practice uh, I'm chasing him around you know, you're like just feeling out your competition and there you come out of this one corner and I get the front wheel up and I, and I can't get it back down and I loop out and I end up like kind of on my hands and knees and the bikes, you know, 50 feet from me. And I look up and all the fans are right there. And there was like a thousand fans right on the fence line. <laughs> and I'm like, it was the most embarrassing moment. <laughs> like I didn't just do that on this day. And I get up and the back fender's broken off. So now I, and I'm on the other side of the track. So I got to do the ride of shame. I basically just ended practice right then. I didn't even ride anymore. Did the ride of shame back across. And I don't remember it because so much happened that day. But Jeremy said, I came in and said, yeah, you know, the throttle stuck. Something happened to the throttle. It just stuck on me. So they had to hurry up and change out the slide, uh, you know, throttle cable, throttle housing. I mean, they basically just redid the throttle the, you know, the grip, the tube, cable, slide, everything. Well, we go on to win that day. We go 1-1 and win the win the championship in a dramatic fashion over uh, McGrath. And then he said later on, afterwards, we were chatting, and I was like, hey, uh, uh, <laughs> the throttle didn't really stick in practice. I was just embarrassed, and I made that up. Well, so, he, did, he did give you credit on that day and the fact that how impressed he was that you were – forced to get jeremy in both motos and how tough that really was to do and you did it it was a very very intense day and the focus that it took and and one bit of experience that i had to draw on that that kept me in the zone for those last few races was that i was in a very similar situation in 1992 when i was trying to win my first professional championship uh on the 125 and Mike LaRocco and I were, were, were basically separated by a point. And it was, you have to go to the last race and there's no other option, but to win both motos. 
You have to win to win. Yeah. And I'm telling you, it is such a, it, when you win, it is such a, the, the feeling that you have, the feeling, the sense of accomplishment that you have and what it gives you in return is second to nothing. I mean, it literally is what every racer strives to experience. Um, and that, and that, and that specific race in steel city in 1996 is, is one of my all time favorite, uh, you know, moments in my racing career. Now, fast forward another, you know, eight months or so when I won the AMA Supercross Championship, I I had to, I went into the last race, uh, McGrath and I, and I needed to get like an eighth or better. And I started second, kind of rode around and got like a fourth. So it was a very uneventful, very like non, you know, climactic finish to something that was a pretty exceptional uh, you know, um, you know, um, achievement, yeah. but give me steel city 96 or give me uh Bud's Creek in 1992, where you have to go there to win. You have to win to win it. And it's like, you have the blinders on and there's nothing else that exists in the world, except I have got to go win these two races. And it's such a, and when it's, when you accomplish that, it's, I mean, it's the best feeling in the world. I'm actually getting goosebumps right now. Uh, uh, thinking about those days so yeah, I'll, that, t- I'll take that that dramatic win any day yeah yeah i can imagine um one thing i can imagine though is taking something from a fan in the audience and ingesting it and jeremy j-bone brought up a story of you crashing in st louis at a supercross and a fan coming up to you and saying hey i've got these pills that are shark cartilage I promise you it's going to make you better. And you took them. Yeah. I probably, I ate those things like Tic Tacs that day. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> How do you do uh, that? Well, I mean, it, it's just a supplement. I actually take shark cartilage right now. Yeah, but still. you didn't maybe, know what it was for sure. Right. I mean, how do you know what you're getting? Well, you, you don't, I guess. Um, trust me, Ralph, during those time periods, uh, that'd be the least of my <laughs> problems. <laughs> things that were going in um <laughs> this is the 90s of moto this is the the 90s in motocross was a lot like the 60s in rock and roll okay let's just leave it that way but so you're talking about uh 1997 i i uh we had a bike issue uh had a little uh carburation bog like in and, and i and i endowed on friday practice we used to ride on fridays my right thigh, the whole right thigh was bruised where it's just black. You know, my, my quad muscles are basically not going to work. Um, and I had to get through the race the next day. And so I had, uh, there was a, a chiropractor, a doctor, somebody there that was massaging my leg and stretching it. Literally, if I wasn't on the bike, I was, I was eating shark cartilage and stretching and uh, <laughs> massaging my leg. And I ended up with the second place that night on a night that I, when I woke up Saturday morning, I didn't think that I was going to be able to ride. And so, you know, you, you win races on your bad days, like Ricky likes to say. And I mean, you win championships on bad days. That would be certainly be uh, one of them, but I don't know. Some guy says, here's some magic potion that'll help you ride tonight. And I'm like, okay, crack it open. Can I have two, (laughs) you know? 
So. I mean, that, that's crazy. I mean, I can't imagine in today's world an athlete, you know, just taking something from a fan, uh, especially with all the testing and everything that's done, you would have no idea what you're ingesting. Yeah, there were, there were the, the drug testing, especially for uh, PEDs and stuff uh, back in the 90s, certainly wasn't what it is now. Totally different world we live in. Well, the 90s world of motocross um, was, as you said, uh, a very different time period than anything else. And the only thing that I can come close to thinking about it would be like uh, the 1970s era of, say, Formula One when things were so dangerous. Guys lived a little wild off the racetrack because they didn't know if they were going to be around at the end of the race come Sunday afternoon. For Moto, on the other hand, it was much different, and then you guys were just rock stars, literally. And you win the championship, and this movie comes about. Fresno Smooth, which in a lot of ways really is what 90s Moto was all about, isn't it? Well, in a way, certainly for some people, yeah, for a large uh, you know, demographic of the, of the sport. Um, you know, I, I can't say that I ever went into a race thinking, okay, you know, I might not be alive after this you know, like the formula one drivers, um, you know, probably had a, had a sense of, I mean, there was, there were, there were drivers dying what once every four races or something. Right. Yeah. yeah, Pretty crazy for a while. I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, it was, but it, it was certainly the, the spirit of not looking that far ahead. Like I only looked towards the next race. Like I didn't look towards the next year. I look towards the next race. If there's no race, then it's, I'm looking forward to Havasu the next weekend, you know, heading out to the lake or whatever our group was doing, our friends or whether we're racing or whether it was off the track. I really didn't look that far ahead. And so I just kind of burned the candle at both ends. And one thing that when I got to the end of 1997, where for a full year I, I, I had won basically you know, every championship, motocross of nations, these sort of things. And that was, that was my goal. And I, I look back and that was the first time that I had, that I had ever stopped and looked back on what I had accomplished in my career and what I had done with my life. Now, the big mistake that I made is that I wasn't really able to reset um, my goals. And I found that there was, there was a year or so, um, a year and a half that I, I was kind of just like a, uh, you know, a ship without a rudder. I was just kind of blowing in the wind, um, kind of cruising off of what I had accomplished. Um, and during that time period was when the movie Fresno Smooth came out. Um, and just things really started to get, you know, the, the lifestyle off the bike and things like that just wasn't, really conducive to being a professional athlete. You know, you and I, you know, I talked about this many times about, yeah. you know, I just kind of wanted to like be, I kind of had this sense of just wanting to be a rock star, but unfortunately what I needed to be was a professional athlete, um, in the, you know, in our sport. And certainly 1999, 2000, um, Carmichael's dedication and, and, and his training program really had taken things. Okay. Now the the rock star is gone. Uh, the music is dead, and now it's time to work hard and train and, and be an athlete. So, how how wild um, did it get, Fro? 
What's that? How wild did it get? Oh, come on, Ralph. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just, uh, you know, the, the thing about it was is, is that, you know, there were a large group of, of guys that I raced against that would be at the same place as Iowa. We'd be in Lake Havasu. We were all on our boats, all having a good time. And then, okay, then I'll see you at the race next weekend. Next weekend, we're on the starting line uh, together. Um, and so, like that term that you've used before in conversations about there being a level playing field was there. Um, and and I imagine for certain riders, the certain riders that weren't part of this this group of ours, that were the guys that were really dedicated, hardcore training guys, you know, the weekends off, they're like doing extra training and then they come to the race the weekend and they're like, wow, these guys were literally, you know, had drank, you know, 20 beers a day for three days straight on, and on the, on the weekend off. And then they come to the race and, and beat me again, you know? So I would imagine that there was a bit of that sort of folklore that, uh, that, that really pissed those guys off, you know? When we come back to more of the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil, we're going to talk about the first tour bus and the clothing style of 90s modem. Stay with us. One of the main reasons for poor vehicle performance is a dirty fuel system. It can cause decreased fuel economy and actually do harm to your engine over time. By adding Lucas Fuel Treatment to your vehicle, it cleans and lubricates the entire fuel system. Pump, carburetors, fuel injectors, and valves as you drive. It also improves your vehicle's performance. It's a non-solvent product designed to protect both gasoline and diesel engines. Lucas Fuel Treatment. It works. Hey, race fans, it's Ralph Shaheen, and like you, I have a huge passion for racing. With the most in-depth features on racers, series, and events, no one covers racing better than America's original motorsports publication, SpeedSport. Get your subscription to SpeedSport Magazine today at SpeedSport.com. Welcome back to more of the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Hey, it's the 85th anniversary of SpeedSport. You get your 85th anniversary collector's issue by going to SpeedSport.com. While you're there, start a subscription or maybe get one of our really cool t-shirts. I know one of these days i got to send one to our guest who is on the show today, Jeff Froemig. And Jeff, you were the first one to bring a tour bus out on the road in moto. Where did that come from? I mean, that was a tour bus. Yeah. Yeah. It was a Newell. It was nice. It was, um, you know, it, the, most of the top athletes in motocross right now, supercross, they have a motor coach of some sort so that at the event, either their family or friends, or they have a place to get away from the race truck, uh, and, and all of that, right. Get, get away from the 18 wheeler. You have your own space. If you want to shower, if you want to lay down, whatever you, you, you know, you have that. So essentially that's what I was doing, but we kind of go back to this thing like, well, rock stars have tour buses. Shit. I need a tour bus. Right. <laughs> um, and fortunately, um, our net sunglasses and goggles, uh, you, you know, helped offset the cost of it. Uh, John Grice was our, was our rep from Arnett then. And Greg Arnett, 
had still owned uh, owned the other company and he's like hell yeah you know they wrote me some big checks to pay for it um tim tim dixon was my driver and so it was it was having a private motor coach like what a lot of a, a lot of motorsports athletes have but it was just my own sort of twist on it you know um, but that tour uh, bus know. was incorporated into ads and commercials and you actually took it to a fan's wedding if i'm not mistaken well not a fan it was a friend actually yeah my my late friend rick fuller up in upstate new york um yeah we actually went from upstate new york down into the city with it and and had his bachelor party and i mean i'm telling you what ralph you pull up in a tour bus it's a it's a game changer right (laughs) one time one time a whole group of us um we we were going to see the beastie boys at the la forum and um i'm thinking God, I'm thinking Ken Block was with us. Maybe I, I can't group people anyway. So we had like, we were all set up with like tickets and passes and all that. So we roll into the place and my driver, Tim Dixon, he was the absolute master. Like he rolls in and says, yeah, like, you know, like, you know, I don't remember exactly what he said. Like, Hey, we're with the band. <laughs> they literally direct us. They open the gate, direct us, you know, direct us in he backs we back up right next to all the tour buses for the beastie boys like we own the place we didn't have any pass to be in there or anything i don't i don't know any of those guys personally yeah it opens a lot of doors ralph in a lot of ways so um yeah so improve the quality of your life by getting a a tour bus yeah yeah, I know that you're happily married now. Kim is a wonderful yeah, yeah, woman. You yeah, have yeah. a fantastic family, but you missed your window. <laughs> certainly, <laughs> I, yeah. certainly the tour bus. The yeah, tour I, bus uh, no, yeah. I never had the tour bus. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, you got rid of it before we started doing TV together because that would have been yeah. a lot of fun on the road. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the clothing styles of 90 Moto, uh, there's some pretty interesting pictures of you and some of the stuff yeah. you wore. And when I talked to J-Bone about it, he said it wasn't really that much of a push. A lot of it was what you were doing back then naturally. Uh, it's pretty much who you were then. Well, it's who, it's who I was. It was our group of friends and the, the culture we were in. I mean, I look back and I think a lot of it's pretty corny now, but um, but that's that's what we we're doing, you know, and we thought we were cool at the time and maybe we were, but it's just like disco. Like disco was rad and then it wasn't, you know, so – um you you're just kind of going with it and you're just having fun and and uh there was a lot of self-expression um uh, with you know like our, our the apparel that we'd wear on the track uh like you know custom painted helmets was a really cool thing having you know your butt patch your butt logo having your name your nickname something on the back of your riding pants and and certainly having uh you know, especially when you're in your twenties, right? You're trying to, you know, separate yourself in so many ways from either competition or, or different individuals and, and stand out and, you know, express your personality. And so, uh, thankfully in, in nineties, nineties, motocross, supercross, we definitely had the ability to do that. Um, things definitely tightened up once, once the money really started to roll in, uh, from the energy drink companies and insurance companies and truck companies and stuff like that, you know, where, where they were, 
you know, these are established corporations like, you know, Toyota, Chevrolet, things like that. Um, you know, things definitely had to be more uh, professional and had to be, had to be cleaned up some. There's a legendary, uh, ad that was for your supercross championship with shift, um, <clears throat> in a hot tub scene in a, in Vegas, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. it, it's not hard to find it. It's still out there today. It was pushing the envelope. Um, but I also hear from a lot of guys with you back then that wasn't really all that hard. It's just turned the camera on that really didn't have to be staged is what they say. Well, for sure. Like I said, I mean, my, my group of friends, it wasn't like I was on an Island and I was just doing this on my own. I mean, this is, this is what, our, you know, our group, what we were doing. And, and that was one of the big, uh, a, a result of, of my decision to leave, uh, for, uh, which was my apparel company for 10 years, uh, and go with a new brand, uh, shift MX, which was, a a, a new brand that Fox racing had uh, created, um, so that they could have Jeremy McGrath under the Fox brand and, and, you know, Jeff Emig under the shift brand. So, and we were, you know, we, we were one and two at the time. Um, and I probably didn't fit the Fox brand, especially then, um, uh, quite, quite like Jeremy did. So we just created something new and between Pete Fox and Todd Covey, uh, and, and myself, we just, it's like, there were no rules with anything. I, I, I don't know whose idea the, the, the hot tub ad was. I remember Chris Holton shot the photos and, and, um, and all that, but it certainly was outside the box. And, and I mean, if you think about it, motocross action wouldn't even run that advertisement, right? The editor of that, uh, and uh, the publisher of that magazine was like, not going to happen. So we made a secondary shift ad which was actually a photo taken. We were going to a, uh, autograph session at Chaparral Motorsports and we, and I had this huge limousine, a lot of limousines back in the day, Ralph <laughs> limousines um, and tour buses for limousines. Yeah. And it was kind of like the, you know, the, the decade of decadence type, um, type attitude, but the, but the hot tub ad, I mean, I had no idea at the time, that it was going to resonate like it has, you know, we were just kind of going with it. And, um, so just tell the story about the ad. It was okay. So I won the championship The you know, it, um, had a pretty good idea that it was going to happen going into the last race. And so, uh, Pete Fox and, and everybody at shift had this idea. Okay. So we'll set this up. Well, now we needed some, some, some girls for the, for the, for the hot tub. One of them was my was my girlfriend at the time. All of the other women in the hot tub were all her friends, right? Which were all my best buddies' girlfriends. And so right. this was the 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 sort of looking behind the curtain is that you know they were all like, yeah, I want to be in the ad. Let's do this. This will be super fun. So we so we had this this huge suite at the MGM in Vegas because the hot tub was on the balcony, right? Okay. It's back in the nineties. They didn't build the hotel rooms like they do now. But, and so, so they're all like, yeah, let's do this. So it's Sunday night after the awards presentation and all that stuff. So all the guys are in the suite having a good time drinking, you know, listening to music, you know, partying it up while we're all outside working. I'm telling you, I, I bet we were in that hot tub for two hours. It was like, do we have the shot yet? 
do we have the shot? It was like, and after a while, you know, it's like, it's getting late. Hey, let's get, let's, let's, let's wrap this up. So if you look at it closely, it's like the champagne glasses, there's not a lot of bubbles left, <laughs> left in the champagne, <laughs> but I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really think much of it at the time. Um, and I really didn't, I didn't think how, you know, Kawasaki would think of it or other sponsors. It was, it it, to me, it felt uh, um, like they were along for my ride, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and there is a bit of a double-edged sword because, you know, a couple of years later, Kawasaki fired me for, uh, you know, having substances on me, you know, a marijuana, which is, uh, you know, now it's legal almost everywhere. But, but, it, but it wasn't then. And so, but it, it, here's the interesting thing about it is, the the manufacturers sponsors everybody they they all want that you know whether it's you know your nikes of the world and your coca-colas and all this sort of stuff they love these athletes that have all this personality and all this flair and all this but then man when it when something goes wrong a lot of the bigger companies they're like sorry they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna clip you you know um so it's interesting, you know, everybody wants to have their cake needed too, but then, you know, there, there comes a point where you've gone too far. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but certainly with the, with the hot tub ad and all that, I mean, it still resonates this day. I mean, people talk about that all the time. All you got to do is I mean, Google I mean, it. That was 20, 22 years ago. Dude. No, and it, it will live on. All you have to do is Google it. If you want to have a quick understanding of what nineties uh, moto was all about. <laughs> We're going to come right back, and we're going to talk about uh, the other side of how things kind of went down and then how Jeff has risen back up once again. We're going to be right back with more of the Ralph Shaheen Show with Jeff Emick, all presented by Lucas Oil. Stay with us. There is less than one hundredth of an inch of motor oil protecting your car's engine. Friction and heat causes engine oil to experience thermal breakdown, weakening its ability to protect the engine and its parts. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer is specially formulated to resist thermal breakdown, protect vital engine parts, and extend the life of your engine. It also stops smoking, knocking, and oil consumption in worn engines. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer. Keep that engine alive. We might be a tick over 80 years old, but we have no thoughts on slowing down, and who said reinventing yourself isn't fun? The all-new Speedsport.com is here. New layout, new images, new video, and all the late-breaking news you expect from America's Motorsports Authority. We know you love sprints, midgets, late models, and everything else that gets dirty. Plus, we've got all your pavement series covered, too. The all-new Speedsport.com. You know, for guys who really love racing. Back here on the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Big thanks to our friends at Lucas Oil. This is their fast and easy speed wax. Make sure you check it out. Lucas Oil, track-proven, race-ready. Find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. Jeff Emig with us here on the show today. A dear friend, a great friend, an absolute brother. And and Jeff, you've brought it up yourself already in this in this show. And I don't. I know I'm not speaking out of turn because you uh, are not afraid to talk about the times that have been tough and how you've gotten through them. And I think that actually is maybe one of the things that's most impressive about you. Um, 
I was talking with Ricky Carmichael earlier today, uh, a dear friend of both of ours, and um, Ricky pointed out that you are absolutely convinced that if you two raced each other, uh, you never really had a chance, but if you two really had a chance to go a full season, that you would have beat him, and he laughs every time he's, he thinks about it, he says. Yeah, and, and I don't know – I don't know what more, uh, you know, I have to do. Uh, the research department ran the numbers um, yeah. on the Real Talk 447 podcast earlier this year. Supercross research department ran the numbers, and head-to-head, I've got him. Um, and then the last time that we raced together head was to head the U.S. Statistically, Open Supercross. Right? Head-to-head, yeah, the only time that we raced together was Supercross in 1999, 250 Supercross. Yeah. And then later on that year, um, at the U.S. Open of Supercross, um, I won the overall, and he got second. So, you know, I don't know what 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 his deal is, why he would think that that um, trend wouldn't continue. Maybe the pendulum was going to swing back in his favor. I don't I don't know, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. That. <laughs> We, 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 sometimes when we're getting going on the Coors Lights, we'll, I mean, this will be like, we'll talk about it for an hour and JH or whoever that's around is like, okay, guys, we need to put this to bed. And we still, after, uh, well, it's been 19, 20 years, we still can't seem to come to a resolution. I got a funny this, feeling so. you never will. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my point that on all, um, you know, all seriousness, uh, what Ricky accomplished in his career and what, what really happened after that race in 1999 at the U S open. Um, and I'd like to think that I have a little part of the motivation that really, that really sparked him to say, you know what? I just got beat by Jeff Emig who just got fired from Kawasaki. I really need to get my, I need to get my ass in gear and I need to do, I need to do some work. Right. Well, he did um, mention that you were probably one of, if not the best teammates he's <laughs> ever had as far as giving him, uh, guidance, experience, conversation, talk, motivation, all that. He said, you're uh, not just a great teammate, but one of the best uh, mentors he's ever had. <laughs> and one of the, a little bit of tough love in there too. Yeah. But, yeah. But, no, we, what's interesting is we were, Polar opposites. The fact that we have the friendship we do now, I am—I I would have never guessed it. If you, if you had, if you had told me in the year two thousand, you guys are going to be as close as you are, I'd say bullshit. It's not going to happen. <laughs> well, but as we wrap this up, two things I want—I want to get get through with you first. Um, as I said before, you're amazing in how you have overcome some of the biggest challenges uh, that a person could. You talked about getting fired from Kawasaki already, the Havasu incident. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you haven't talked about, but those that maybe know your story do know that when you were riding, stuttering was a massive problem for you. I can remember interviewing you when you were riding, and it was a, a great challenge for you. And now you worked through that and became a highly successful, very talented award-winning broadcaster on national TV with Fox working the Supercross series without stuttering. To this day, I still don't know how you did that. And I also think back to you crashing and hurting yourself tremendously and coming back and winning the U.S. Open. How did you do all that? Yeah, I 
I mean, I grew up with a stuttering problem and I'll be honest with you. It's not something that you're cured of. I mean, I remember yesterday I got stuck on a word trying to get a word out, you know? So it's something that you manage and that through the success of my racing career, I was forced to be a public speaker. But there was also a voice inside of me that was looking for a way out. And when I was younger, I I couldn't physically do it. I mean, when I was little, I stuttered pretty bad. And it probably got a little better as I went along. And I found little little bridge words and things that I could kind of cover up. But you watch that. I used to say, you know, you know, mm-hmm. 50 times in a, in an interview or like, or, uh, or ums and all these sort of things. And I've always felt like my life, like not just my career, but my life is literally like, like a whoop section. It's just filled with a lot of ups and downs, you know? Yeah. And the, I've been so blessed to have amazing high points in my career and my life. And if it all ended today, man, it's been a hell of a ride. Um, uh, you know, we, we all wish we could not have any downtimes, right? I mean, but everybody does, everybody does. And the quicker that, that every individual realizes, Hey, you're not the only one that has shitty days and you're not the only one that got fired and has to reinvent yourself, or you're not the only one that's had a setback, the better off you'll be because I mean, you, you look at some of the greatest, most successful people in the world have it's, it's those downtimes that has, has then, you know, forced them to make a decision to whether or not you're going to rise back. Um, and, and being down, like nobody wants to, I don't, you don't want to be down. And so what are you going to do about it? You either accept the challenge or, you know, or you just shrink away. But, and I think that with the vocal stuff, uh, when I was younger, I, I always felt like that I, that I had a voice, but I, I just couldn't get it out. Right? I couldn't physically, you know, manifest that. <clears throat> and I always admired um, guys like Bob Hanna or Rick Johnson. Whenever I was around those guys, when I was a young kid or a young professional, <clears throat> man, those guys would come into a press conference or something, and they just owned it. I mean, you know, you've been around Rick Johnson before. I mean just a legend on and off the track, amazing individual. And there was a part of me that was like, yeah, I want to, I want to be that guy someday. And by the success and self-confidence that I had in racing, the success I had in racing and how that built my self-esteem and my confidence and my exposure to having to speak in public, also having a desire to be better at that and always wanting to be the color analyst for supercross and motocross it just i felt like i was i was just being drawn to that position and i remember what would it have been 2006 i was on a flight up to chicago to go to uh the to the um headquarters for supercross uh in aurora illinois and for my i was going to do a bit of a test session the next day because they were going to hire me as the, as the color analyst. They were thinking about it. And I remember being on the flight, looking out the window 
and having this moment where I was like, what the hell am I doing? You can't do this. You, you stutter. You have a speech impediment. You're going to expose yourself on worldwide television. You're going to expose this weakness that you have. And I remember it like it was yesterday looking out the window and then having to like regroup mentally and, and going, okay, look, you can do this. You can, this is what you want. You can do this. Go there tomorrow. Give it your best effort. Do the best you can and then fly home. And that was always my dad's advice. Go to the race, give it your very best effort, and then go home. You can't do more than your best. But if you go back to these rides home from these races yeah, when there it is. shit was bad, there it is. Did you give your best effort? There were, there were races that I didn't win that dad was buying me ice cream on the way home. Because you knew you there did were your races, best. There were races that I won. I might have won one of three classes or something. And he's like, you didn't give your best effort in those other classes. So when you bring it all together, like this, this thing is, you know, we all have these ups and downs in life. I don't care who you are. You look at Jeff Bezos. He's had his share of ups and downs. He's got a lot of ups going right now, but, but, um, but this adversity and being, having the determination to face that, to look, fear in the eye and say, okay, let's do this, go toe to toe with it and overcome these things. You know, if you give it your best effort, man, most of us, most of the time we're going to, we're going to succeed. And so I think that the speech thing and having a stuttering issue for me has been something that I just faced that. And I, you know, and I just looked it head on. I mean, I'll tell you, Ralph, you know, because you were right there, coaching me through those first on cameras i'm telling you when we, it, it took me probably five years to get comfortable with those those first deals you're like you, you're you're okay you know what to do but what did i do i had i would write down remember how yep. much i used to oh, yeah. write oh, yeah. i used to i used to put in handwriting what i wanted to say at the opening of a show yep and you were like don't try to memorize it <laughs> just get your thoughts on paper yeah i mean what a difference that was from the first year to year 12 Right. right. It was it was a totally different person. Well, I'm glad you did it because we had 12 wonderful years together in the booth and uh, I'll remember oh, those man. forever. Uh, let's wrap it up with this. Um, you, you continue to uh, evolve yourself into other things. Uh, you got the Emmy Grips going. You're an ambassador for Husqvarna these days and you've started up the MCA with some other folks. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. <clears throat> so... Uh... Man, still after 23 years, I'm a brand ambassador for uh, Shift MX yep, and the uh, uh, parent company's Fox Racing. Uh, brand ambassador for Husqvarna Motorcycles on um, what four, 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 four years of that. Um, I do some co-branded products with ODI Grips out of Riverside, California. So we've got very successful products. I've got two different styles of grips for motocross and off-road bikes. Um, the last, uh, it's probably been about four years now, uh, Jean-Eric Burleson, who was the former president, uh, of KTM Husqvarna North America and Mark Blackwell, who's a legend in the, in, in the motorcycling industry. Uh, the three of us got together and created a board and, and created an organization, uh, the United States Motorcycle Coaching Association. So uh, this is a nonprofit organization that our, our, our goal is to grow the sport of two-wheel motorcycling. 
And one of the ways that we identified that we can help grow the industry um, post global financial crisis um, is to create a, uh, a certification process for motorcycle coaches. Now you would think that that would already be there, but it's, but it, it, nothing like that has actually been in place. So think of what uh, a certified coach would be for the U S ski and snowboard association, right. everything that comes along with that. So, so that's what we've been working on. You can visit usmca.org or our consumer facing entity, which is motorcyclecoaching.org. Either find a coach, become a coach or learn more about it or donate to the cause. Well, Fro, greatly appreciate it, brother. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Ralph, it's, it's such a pleasure. I love the format of the show. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate our friendship, uh, working and, uh, and personal uh, relationship that we've had. Yeah, that 12 years of doing Monster Energy Supercross was fantastic and certainly some of the best times of my life. Absolutely, brother. Back at you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the Fro Daddy. Thanks for joining us here on the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. We'll see you next time.